Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie, and if you're new to the show, welcome. Normally, my regular co-host, Abby, is here with me, and we discuss our favorite horror movies together and with you. But she just had a baby and is on maternity leave. So today, I am joined by artist and horror nerd, my very good friend and patron of the show, Carolyn Girk. Say hi, Carolyn. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I am super excited to be here. All right, I am excited as well. Y'all need to check out Carolyn's Etsy Velvet Hand Designs. She has a large collection of beautiful hand-painted works of art on there, and most of them are horror-related, and all of them are feminists. And I have one of uh, your paintings, Carolyn, of a xenomorph in my office, and I bought it when I first discovered your Etsy, and this was before we became friends and it's still one of my favorites and I love seeing it every day I come into the office. Well, today we'll be discussing the 2019 religious horror film, St. Maud. It was written and directed by Rose Glass and stars Morphid Clark, Jennifer L, Lily Knight, and Lily Frazier. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and you watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Carolyn, would you please read us the plot summary? Absolutely. Following a traumatic event while working as a nurse in hospital, Maud accepts a job as an end-of-life care nurse for Amanda, a retired and ailing dancer. As Maud begins exploring an extreme and obsessive connection to God, she forms an attachment to Amanda. But amidst Maud's fragile psyche, the pressure soon mounts not to treat Amanda's declining physical health, but to liberate her soul from damnation. Thank you, Carolyn, for that lovely plot summary. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the production of this film. Okay, so St. Maud is writer-director Rose Glass's first feature-length film. Before this, she had only written and directed a short film called Room 55, which is set in 1950s England, and it's about a like cooking show housewife who stays in a hotel and weird shit happens. <laughs> It's, I don't want to give give it away. Um, it's only about 20 minutes long, and you can watch it for free on Vimeo. Uh, and I put the link in the show notes, so check it out. Okay, so according to Glass in an interview with Allison Foreman, it's always fascinated me that thousands of years ago, if somebody said that they heard the voice of God in their heads, then people would think a miracle had happened or that person was some sort of saintly revered figure. And Glass notes like that these are like the inspirations behind her the film. And she says, now if somebody says they hear the voice of God in their head, they get treated quite differently, don't they? According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the film had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 8th, 2019. Shortly after, A24 and Studio Canal acquired U.S. and U.K. distribution rights to the film. 
It was scheduled to be released in the U.S. and in the U.K. in the spring of 2020, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it was delayed and then ultimately it was released in theaters for a brief amount of time in the U.K. starting in October 2020. It was released to video on demand in February 2021, and the film received positive reviews from both audiences and critics. According to VFD Pixie, quote, St. Maud is unsettling because of the realistic situations and intense portrayals. It isn't an in-your-face horror, but it's a frightening look at how the reality of isolation and sadness catapults some into the comfort of fantasy. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Yes, hell yes, it passes a lot because there are so many women with names in this film. It is such a joy. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit and shoot the film? Yes. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Yes. Okay, so let's get into our discussion. Let's start with Angels of Death and a Broken System. Take it away, Carolyn. Okay, so perhaps true crime podcasts have infiltrated my psyche, but upon my first watch of Rose Glass's St. Maud, my mind began to wander through Angel of Death territory. Angel of Death killers, sometimes referred to as Angels of Mercy, are individuals in a professional or medical caring position that they use to facilitate their crimes. One such killer was Nurse Jane Toppin, who admitted during her murder trial that she was sexually aroused by death, calling to mind Maud's seemingly orgasmic connection to God, not to mention the link between sex and carnage in the scene with the guy from the pub. Jane would administer a drug mixture to patients she chose as her victims, lie in bed with them, and hold them close to her body as they died. Yeah, so this is too funny because I literally just learned about this woman like a week ago, and she was... (laughs) quite the character i think one of her nicknames was jolly jane which is such a charming nickname yes it is Um, i i think she got it because she laughed at her sentencing which is like yikes (laughs) yeah how sweet right (laughs) however the real life killer who seems to me most reflected in mod is elizabeth wetlaufer so elizabeth bethy wetlaufer a registered nurse in southwest ontario murdered eight senior citizens and attempted to murder six more between 2007 and 2016. Wetlaufer struggled to come to terms with her bisexuality and her strict religious upbringing in a devout Baptist household. Maud parallels Wetlaufer in her extreme piousness and her desire to become closer to God. Wetlaufer admitted to hearing a voice not in her head, but in her ear that she believed was God telling her who to kill. She also referred to her impulse as a red surge. This surge, like Jane Toppin's arousal, may be reflected in Maud's orgasmic reaction to what she perceives to be the voice of God, an extreme and physical response. Wetlaufer later questioned whether the voice may have been an ominous presence, that of the devil, instructing her to do his bidding. Maud does not seem to have this inclination. On the contrary, even as she gorges herself on a night of alcohol and sexual encounters, she sees her individual self as having sinned, and her God as infallible. She does not question the motivations of the being or voice that drives her. Like Wetlaufer, we see that Maud has endured a traumatic experience. We're left to fill in the blanks of this event, wondering what happened and was Maud slash Katie at fault. Perhaps Katie was responsible for a death, much like Wetlaufer herself, though in Maud's case it doesn't appear to have been intentional. 
They both struggled with guilt, and they both experienced extreme mental health events leading to breaking points. We know that Wetlawfer suffered from addiction, and it's implied that Maud has attempted suicide. Like Wetlawfer, Maud slash Katie can continue in a vein of her profession, leaving her caring for vulnerable persons with extraordinarily little accountability. What would happen to a patient without the level of self-advocacy that Amanda has? We do see Maud lose her position, but the efforts made by her superior seem impassioned. Maud and Wetlawfer as hospice carers are already exposed to a traumatic and exhausting work environment. Healthcare workers are under a great deal of strain, and long-term care hospice workers are regularly exposed to death and loss and the decay of the human form. Personal care work is often viewed as an undesirable profession. One must be up close and personal with bodily fluids, with dementia, with unnerving behavior and often abuse. Maud refers to her charges as decrepit and dying. Turnover in such a field is high, and facilities often find themselves short-staffed. Hiring can, at times, be done extremely quickly, seemingly to get more bodies on the floor. So Wetlawfer wrestled with her mental health issues, seeking addictions treatment, as well as mental health intervention. But despite her clear instability, she was never given the resources to address her severe issues. She was allowed to remain in the presence of patients with very little autonomy. Throughout St. Maud, we are shown that Maud's mental illness slash mental break is clear to those around her. Amanda creates a fallacy of participation, but ultimately mocks her and reminds her that, quote, we're all alone here. When Maud loses her job with Amanda and is being reprimanded by her superior, we hear the woman ask Maud if everything is okay, stating that Amanda had expressed other concerns. Maud quietly states, I'm fine. Is this the type of mental health support or lack thereof that Maud received in her professional life following the trauma she endured as a hospital employee? Joy sees evidence of Maud's struggle when she visits her home. She apologizes for not having tried to help her, stating, quote, no one did anything. It's clear at this point that Joy is uncomfortable in Maud's home, aware of her strange behavior at that very moment. She promises to come back, but this will be too late for Maud. Both Maud and Wetlawfer are revealed in a sense. The latter, Wetlawfer, literally confessed her crimes to numerous people, none of whom helped her, or rather helped her patients. Maud's collapsing psyche becomes clear through her words and actions. We see the people around her react to her unpredictability, and yet, no one takes a single step to help her until she is literally drenching her body in gasoline. No one was there to save Maud, so she invents a scenario in which she becomes the savior, meanwhile creating a godlike presence that guides her own soul. Wow, that was extremely well written. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. And I think that all of this connects really well into our next topic, which is using religion to cope with trauma. According to Jason Scott, what struck me most about Rose Glass's St. Maud, her directorial debut, was the title character's condemnation of self through isolation, self-mutilation, and strict minimalistic living as a way to adhere to some, some unattainable idealism about purity and faith. Amanda's blasé, sometimes mocking attitude certainly doesn't help matters. In one particularly uncomfortable scene, Amanda feigns interest when Maud describes how she can feel God within her bones, mimicking Maud's very real, if delusional, bodily experience. It's nearly sexual for Maud as she sought out religion to replace the human connection she can't find anywhere else. The cross has become her salve. Her salve. 
a self-medication for someone who that might just be too far gone before the film has even started, unquote. And uh, Scott continues and says, quote, Maud returns to the local pub she used to frequent, tries to gain attention from a nearby table, and then randomly hooks up with a stranger. But she feels nothing. Nothing can satiate her like religion does, unquote. That scene where Maud is trying to break into the conversation at the neighboring table with her forced laughter and eye contact is terribly uncomfortable to watch. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> it's so sad. And it's like she's just, she's just completely forgotten how to interact with other humans, which we just talked about this before we started recording. We did. Side note, I definitely feel this way living in year two of this pandemic. Like, I used to be a really like outgoing person, and I think the trauma of this past year has really kind of worn me down. Like, and trauma has a way of making us feel isolated. Even if others are going through something very similar, we still can't seem to connect. And it's um absolutely yeah. It's hard to discuss it with other people to to open up and be that vulnerable with someone, even though we're all going through some form of it. You know, and I wonder if social media makes it worse. Because, I mean, there's already proof that social media makes us feel isolated even when there's not a pandemic going on. <laughs> but yeah. um, there is sort of like a, a FOMO, like a feeling of missing out. Um, especially people who aren't really taking the pandemic seriously. There are people going on vacations, mm -hmm. you know, or people... I can see people going on vacations now. But I, but before, like in 2020, people were going on vacations, people were leaving their house. And I was sitting in my house with a newborn, like, what are you people doing? And but there was a part of mm -hmm. me that felt envious, like I was a little envious of that, a little jealous of. Yeah, absolutely. Of and so I can see how connecting with this film, you know, this film was was uh, released in 2019. Uh, and I think it's kind of, it's almost very strange that uh, Rose Glass really touches on these very current feelings. And it almost feels like this mm -hmm. film was meant to come out right after this pandemic. I think this film connected with a lot more people. Um, yeah, I think you're right. So Scott continues, so she cowers back into the pages of her tattered Bible because he has no because she has no other place to go. She mercilessly repents for backsliding so easily, and now a new wave of self-hatred overtakes her mind and body. A reinvigorated faith pulses through her body, but she's already split in two when God's voice pierces in the darkness a chilling bass that feels far more devilish than one might expect. She commits herself fully to the warped fantasy, here is where Maud's unreliable perspective immerses the viewer, and we see exactly the delusions she sees, from a glistening gold set of wings to Amanda's transformation into some sort of demonic entity. I don't believe that's actually happening, and that's what uh, Jason Scott says. The final act correlates chillingly to centuries of religious perversity by those in power and the poor and vulnerable are left to suffer and die and feed the monster, unquote. So Kenneth Pargament, 
is the author of the book Psychology of Religion and Coping and a leading researcher in religious coping. Along with developing the RCOPE questionnaire to measure religious coping strategies, Pargament and his colleagues designated three basic styles of coping with stress. In uh, Parkman's article, Religion and the Problem-Solving Process, Three Styles of Coping, he identifies the collaborative, the self-directed, and deferring coping styles. The collaborative style of religious coping involves an active and internalized personal exchange with God. Uh, the deferring coping style is when individuals rely heavily on God and delegate their stress without taking personal responsibility for the situation. The self-directed style of religious coping emphasizes the free will given by God that allows for the individual to solve the problem on their own. The collaborative style of coping has been found to produce the most advantages in clinical settings. Um, so within these three types of coping styles, there are like two ways you could handle it. There's the positive and the negative. Positive meaning that the person who has experienced something traumatic has a healthy relationship with their faith, with the clergy, and with their family. Now, negative coping, according to Pargament, uh, it, quote, encompasses interpersonal, interpersonal and divine categories, including conflict with religious others, questioning guilt and perceived distance from or negative views of a higher power, unquote. So Amanda, who is dying of cancer, is, in my opinion, using a negative religious coping to get through her terminal illness. But Maud, um, I don't think Maud is using positive coping as like the opposite of Amanda. Like, interestingly, there's this theory of negative and positive coping uh, that it, it doesn't actually matter or that it, it doesn't like work. Um, a lot of people, a lot of psychologists will say that um, negative, all religious coping is negative coping, <laughs> which is... I don't know if that's necessarily true, uh, but again, I, there's like contrary results. Like uh, Terry Lynn Gall says, many studies on the subject show uh, contrary results. For example, some psychologists conclude that religiosity has no positive or negative outcomes. And then others say that the only religious coping that actually happens is negative and it provides negative effects. Yeah. So do you think that Maud is using a form of self-directed coping in that she relies heavily on her relationship with God, but she holds herself fully responsible for what she deems to be her failings? Her God is a punishing God. She begs him for guidance, but she feels the need to further punish herself for her shortcomings, like responding to her night out with the nails in the soles of her shoes. Well, I would say absolutely yes, because she never actually blames God for anything bad that happens to her. Uh, but she also never doubts his existence. Like, she thinks that she's not worthy of him and his love, and she blames herself for anything that goes wrong in her life. Um, so it could be, like, a deferred coping, but also I think that there's, there's like, kind of both. There's, like, deferred coping, and then there's self-directed coping. Like, it's it's interesting. It's a very strange way to look at religion in horror because 
we talk about how let's say the exorcist right the exorcist is like a great example of religious horror everyone knows it it's all about doubting your faith and and coming back to your faith and whatnot um but this is not like that i guess the conjuring movies are similar where they don't necessarily ever doubt their faith in those movies either um but i think that because this is like a character study film kind of similar to the exorcist i think it's interesting that maude it never doubts her faith even when uh amanda says that she is sorry at the end of the film and goes through like her character arc where she apologizes for treating her poorly it that when she says that um god isn't real to maude that doesn't actually break maude like maude almost is like unfazed by it it's like i i think she says like you're the loneliest girl i've ever met or something i think that is what like breaks maude i think maude believes that god exists and he is always there but i don't know if she believes that he's always there for her because she doesn't feel worthy of it so she blames herself rather than blaming others and god so it's it's like this weird form of self-hatred within her trauma because i think she feels i mean part of her trauma is that she couldn't save the patient that she was trying to do cpr on she she actually technically killed them right because she breaks their chest i think that uh this is a really interesting look at religion and and horror films um, okay, so Maud does not connect with family or friends or really anyone. She is alone with God as her only companion. But like we said earlier, what if God doesn't exist, according to Amanda? Then Maud is truly alone. So Maud might think that what she is doing is positive coping, but I think there it's like a form of negative coping as I'm sure most people feel after watching this. Uh, Jason Scott ends his essay with, quote, what St. Maud highlights so eloquently is the deterioration of such understanding and how deeply rooted trauma transforms your entire life, leaving you to struggle for years to find the truth. It takes work, decades even, to extricate yourself from such a dark abyss. And Maud is a simple testament of the many who will never escape, unquote. Okay, so let's get into our next topic, which is William Blake and St. Maud. So, Speaking of religion, because that's what this whole movie is about, really. The art and poetry of William Blake is a huge part of this film. According to the essay, The Rapture of St. Maud by VFD Pixie, quote, The color palette for St. Maud mimicked the soft pastels of angelic art one finds on church prayer cards. And very much like the book of William Blake's religious paintings, Amanda Gifts Maud, researching Blake for an article I wrote for Grimm Magazine, that is VFD Pixie researched this article, was fascinating. And the parallels between his life and Maude are so well done. Blake, a Romantic era poet and artist, becomes Maude's source of inspiration. He had regular visions of God, was assumed to be a madman, and rejected organized religion, claiming that to be human is divine, and the imagination was an act of spirituality. Blake is just as significant as Mary Magdalene, the patron saint of women and reformed sinners, in Maude's journey as God's soldier, unquote. 
And according to Sammy Gale for their article entitled Nursing Unacted Desires, quote, when our fanatical nurse Maud is given a book of William Blake texts and visual art, it catalyzes her gothicized imagination, the haunting return of a recent trauma and the disjunction of narrative order as Maud unravels, hears voices, and has visions. Blake has lived a curious gothic afterlife. He crops up in horror fiction such as Red Dragon and Hannibal and in the macabre anti-authoritarian graphic novels of Alan Moore and in film from Jim Jeremusha's dead man to Ridley Scott's Prometheus to Lars von Trier's Antichrist. A recent McSweeney's article titled Death Metal Lyric or William Blake quote seems to sum up the way Blake has become weirdly entwined with goth culture unquote. Gale goes on to compare Blake's poem Nurse's Song to that of the themes presented in St. Maud. So the poem goes, when the voices of children are heard on the green and whisperings are in the dale, the days of my youth rise fresh in my mind, my face turns green and pale. Then come home, my children, the sun is gone down and the dews of night arise. Your spring and your day are wasted in play in your winter and night in disguise. Ooh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's really creepy. <laughs> it is. In Blake's Nurse's Song, as in Glass's film, we occupy the repressive mindset of a quasi-parental authority. Here, the green and pale read sick, internal machinations of a nurse. Certainly, those whisperings sound ominous, especially combined with disguise. Both express the idea of concealment, perhaps of the nurse's true self in order to fit in socially. As St. Maud continues, it becomes clearer and clearer that our protagonist's religious mythology is a cloak to hide something far darker within herself, self-emulation giving rise to self-hatred. Like an epiphany in reverse, St. Maud asks how much of ourselves we disguise and conceal in the pursuit of self-effacing acclaim, an enduring paradox illuminating a hunger to be good inverting before our eyes." Unquote. So there's another Blake poem that I really like called The Sick Rose that could also be connected to this film. Uh, the poem goes, O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Some spooky sexual undertones right there, I think. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and it's really wild. Like is like if we if you look at this it's like is Maud the rose is God the worm? Is Amanda the rose? Is Maud the, the worm? Like, there are a lot of options for, like, various interpretations of this poem as well for St. Maud. So, listener, if you have your own interpretation, <laughs> let us know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Blake was a Christian. Yes. However, he was also considered uh, something of a radical, as mentioned above. Uh, Gail compares him to Maud, and I do believe that they are similar in some ways, but Blake was extremely liberal, unlike Maud. 
He was an early feminist and an admirer of Mary Wollstonecraft, which was Mary Shelley's mother. And he was very much a supporter of the very scandalous free love movement that happened in the 1800s in England. And there was also rumors that Blake was polyamorous and he wanted a second partner in his marriage. So yeah, I'd say he was very different from Maud in that sense. Just a bit. According to Jason Whitaker, quote, a number of critics have noted the significance of Amanda's gift of the book, a copy of Morton Paley's 1978 fade-in edition of Blake's Prince. But this first glimpse of the romantic is subtly significant. The book is literally off-center, and when Amanda gives it to Maud, it is of less significance to her than Maud believes. Instead of being the beginning of some deep bond between the two women, this is a casual, almost careless offloading of something that seems that means very little to the dancer who is now dying of cancer. As with so many things, Maud completely misunderstands the importance of this act, immersed in the shadows of her religious experience with little guidance. With little to guide her as she heads out towards deeper waters, she pours over Blake's images. The first time I watched it, I hadn't really noticed that the book was off-center, which is really interesting framing. And it completely gives the impression that Amanda's just thoughtlessly handing off an item, not that she's bestowing Maud with a great gift. And we do actually see the William Blake book on her shelf when Maud is looking at her books in a previous scene, as though it's just she found it and she's handing it off to Maud. And also, I believe that she completely misreads the meaning of Blake's images. Like Whitaker goes on to say, quote, as Blake has written in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained and the restrainer or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling, unquote. Whitaker says, incapable of seeing herself as she truly is, Maud has restrained Katie, and inevitably, the return of the repressed is monstrous horror rather than a marriage of the divine and the diabolical, unquote. So let's get into our final thoughts. Uh, we're going to talk about contrast, queerness, abjection of the corporeal body, and God as a lover and self-portrait. So take it away, Carolyn. Okay. So in St. Maud, there are extreme disparities particularly between our two main characters. Amanda represents sin and earthly delights. She revels in pleasing her body, smoking, drinking, sex. Maud, conversely, lives a very stark life, eating meager meals, living in a bare apartment. When we first see her lay down to sleep within Amanda's opulent mansion, Maud doesn't even cover her body with blankets. Rather, she curls up on top of the bedding. Interesting that despite Maud's bare existence, she chooses extremely gothic and ornate scissors with which to murder Amanda perhaps reflexive of Maud not truly abstaining from luxury in her act of devotion. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, when we do see Maud indulge in pleasures of the flesh, so to speak, in sex acts with men from the pub, she's dull and listless, engaging only minimally. She slaps away the touch of one of the men. In contrast, we see Maud revel in the orgasmic experience she has with God, with Amanda by her side. She even seems to have flashes of Amanda's movements, spends time observing footage of Amanda's body dancing when she was well, and fantasizes about their hands touching. This scene intrigues me so much. It's so strange. Yeah, it's it definitely stands out, doesn't it? In an interview with Vulture.com, when asked about a sexual bond between Amanda and Maud, Rose Glass stated, The whole thing with Amanda being gay, I wanted to play with people's expectations. 
If you place a Christian character alongside a gay character, the audience says, oh, it's going to be a story about repressed desires. Her heart says no, but her body says yes, sort of thing. But I've seen that story quite a lot before. I thought it would be more interesting if the roots of Maude trying to save Amanda were not at all based on her disapproval of her sexuality. It's much more ambiguous. There is an element of physical attraction, but for me, it's not about Maude repressing her sexuality. Sometimes women bonding with other women can take on this almost romantic tinge. I think part of her envies Amanda and wishes she could be a bit more like her. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So maybe we could read Maud as not disapproving of Amanda's sexual orientation, but disapproving of her own Maud's sexual desire. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes, I absolutely agree with that. So she doesn't want to feel desire for anyone. The sensations she feels when God speaks to her are acceptable only as a gift of God and are abject in Maud's mind when they're tied to her own instincts in corporeal form. Physical pleasure and satisfaction are a weakness to Maud, something to be punished, and a dangerous tether pulling her further from God. A connection to her own physical body is a painful reminder of the abjection she endured while in the traumatic, traumatic moments of the beginning of the film. Maud experienced the dramatic forcing of the abject in the form of bodily fluids upon her psyche. Uh, Julie Kristeva calls the abject, quote, the place where meaning collapses, stating that, quote, it must be radically excluded. Maud's hands are buried in the chest of a patient, buried within a corpse. She spends much time in the later segments of this film washing her hands, as if a tormented modern-day Lady Macbeth, desperately trying to free herself of the guilt and disgust of her own experience. Oh, <clears throat> Carolyn, I love it. There's so much hand-washing. There's so much hand-washing. <laughs> Yes. It's like she's forever trying to get this memory off of her. Yes, out damn spot, out I say. Absolutely. Yes. So Amanda's connection and reverence of her own physical form is not only sinful to Maud, but it triggers a relationship to the wastes of the human form, the decay of the human form. The abject of the human body is something Maud must reject, and she cannot bear to observe Amanda reveling in her own sensations. At first, as she draws nearer to Amanda... Once things come to a head, it can be surmised that Maud feels betrayed and ashamed, perhaps, that she allowed herself to be tempted by the apple, Amanda, within her opulent garden. Amanda has become a temptress, the embodiment of sin and desire, and a painful reminder of who Maud once was. Amanda reflects Katie, a woman who indulges, who feels deeply, who's boisterous and godless. Maud cannot bear witness to this image of herself, a guilty person, blood upon her hands. Maud must remove Amanda as the symbol of her own failings. She's tied to this person who stirred something inside her and she's desperate to cut that, that tether. She's desperate to eradicate evidence of her inability to please her perceived God. Uh, there's a quote from Kirla Janice's House of Psychotic Women that feels really apt in this scenario. Janice writes, quote, Every problem manifests because we have falsely constructed ideals and cannot meet them. The repeated failure to make decisions based on logic or sound belief and have our emotions follow suit is confusing to us. So we try to force it, or create a facade so watertight that even we fall for it ourselves. That is, until a tiny crack appears and the whole thing comes crashing down on us. End quote. Mm. So Maud realizes she has to set Amanda free of the demon that resides within her. In doing so, Maud sets herself free from Amanda. Maud must bring Amanda to God through death, and in doing that... Maud is next to God. 
After slaying Amanda, Maud seems to float. She's euphoric. She's experienced a brush with the divine. Her last act, before achieving a misguided version of goodness, is to set Katie, her past self, free. Or cast her upon the pyre. Maud sets Katie alight, burning her for her sins. In this process of shadow self immolation, Maud can achieve sainthood or martyrdom. Martyrdom. <laughs> I've also felt that Maud was in love with God, or at least her idea of God, or even in love with the idea of becoming one with him and not having a body, especially since all of her trauma comes from dealing with the very realistic body horror of being a nurse. And writer-director Rose Glass spoke with Allison Foreman of Mashable and said, although it's not explicitly stated in St. Maud, Glass says she wrote the final version of Maud as someone who had a completely secular upbringing and no real history with religion. So when Maud does find God, an event brought on only in part by the horrific hospital accident depicted at the film's beginning, it sets off a shift. It sets off like a shift in her worldview. Quote, the idea of having this very physical, orgasmic, ecstatic reaction was important to me, Glass says. We can all connect with the idea of wanting to transcend our body in some way and connect with something and feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. To me, that's what's happening in those scenes in her head. And it's like, yes, yeah, like there's religious ecstasy, but it's also tapping into the same bit of the brain that gets activated by sexual ecstasy. This is also really interesting because when the audience finally like sees Maud's point of view, basically, we do hear the voice of a god. And Glass said that she heard actor Morfid Clark speaking Welsh on the phone to her family. And she thought, wow, this is like a lovely, mysterious, old sounding language. And she wanted Clark to speak God's lines in Welsh. And so they took Clark's voice and they pitched it down so God's voice is also Maud's voice. Like, is is Maud God? Or at least, does she think that she is? Yeah, she she holds the key to her own downfall and her own salvation. But in the lack of awareness of her own role in those events, she's unable to change them. Right. And also, if Maud sees God as herself, but she also hates herself, is there some strange like connection here like does she secretly hate god and i'm sure she would like never admit that um but instead she hurts herself and she calls it worship so it's like by hurting herself she's also maybe hurting god or it's very it's like a it's i feel like this thought is kind of like not fully is not fully like expressed here and i can like i, I have what i have to want to say in my head but like, i can't like get out exactly how we feel about this and instead of like worshiping she hurts herself and then she calls it worship and like maybe she thinks that this pleases god by by hurting herself and she think i guess she thinks it does like please herself to hurt herself I think Maud likes loneliness and pain because she thinks God likes it for her. And it's like the very controversial ritual of flagellation, like Acolytes of Horror, which is a great YouTube channel. Uh, they talk about this and they also talk about how Maud might quote unquote love God, but she hates people and like, isn't God in everyone? It's almost 
less that she loves God than that she desperately wants to be loved by God. Yes. She she doesn't love other people, but she wants to be loved by other people. Uh-huh. She wants Amanda to love her. She yes. wants she wants other people to care about her, but she just like that scene when she's trying to connect with the people next to her, she doesn't know how people behave. She does not know how to connect to people. She just wants them to accept her like she wants God to accept her and embrace her. Either way, like Glass interprets this as all being in Maud's head. So if that's the case, then of course God will have Maud's voice. According to Sammy Gale, quote, not only does God give Maud her life's purpose, he is always with her. She experiences spiritual seizures, equal parts pleasure and pain, recalling the ecstasy of St. Teresa of Avila. Okay. So I had to look up St. Teresa because I don't know anything about saints, really. Um, and she had raptures that were very similar to Maud's. And according to her Wikipedia page, Teresa, who became a celebrity in her town for dispensing wisdom, uh, she was also known for her raptures, which sometimes involved levitation. It was a source of embarrassment to her, and she made her sisters hold her down when this occurred. Subsequently, historians, neurologists, and psychiatrists like Peter Fenwick and Javier Alvarez Rodriguez, among others, have taken an interest in her symptomatology. The fact that she wrote down virtually everything that happened to her during her religious life means that they have all this like invaluable, rare medical record from the 16th century. And a lot of people thought that she suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. Which connects to Rose Glass's comment that when someone now speaks to God, we don't see them in the way we once did. Yeah. So, okay, let's go back to this idea of being in love with God uh, and that talking to God is like borderline orgasmic. Uh, So have you ever heard of Princess Mirabai? I know almost nothing about her. That's okay. I had just learned about her as well. Um, She was from India and she lived in the late 1400s. I first heard about her from the Literary Witches book. uh, And there's a brief explanation on who she is in like the Oracle version of this book. Uh, So you'll, when I read this, you'll instantly see why Maud made me think of her. So instead of attending To her royal and wifely duties, Princess Mirabai wrote intense erotic devotional poetry to the god Krishna, whom she thought of as her lover. And side note, um, if you're not quite sure who Krishna is, he is basically like the Jesus of Hinduism. Um, Okay, so Mirabai's in-laws loathed her unconventional ways, and she miraculously escaped their poisoning attempts twice. When the in-laws tried to bring her back into the family, Mirabai spent the night at a Krishna temple and then just disappeared. Legend has it that she merged with Krishna's image that night, or she continued on her spiritual pilgrimage in disguise. I I feel like Maud would really like the idea of being absorbed by God. Yes. Like Mirabai merged with Krishna. Like it's sort of the ultimate form of acceptance and validation and kind of the opposite of the idea of Catholics ingesting the Eucharist, the blood and body of Christ. Uh-huh. Like in the scenario, the individual is consumed by the God. Yes. And when like Maud has her orgasmic visions of God, it could seem like, I mean, it, it could be seen as him like choking her 
Or maybe God is choking on her while he is eating her alive. Like she is being devoured by God in those moments. And to me, it's sort of like, I imagine a snake eating a mouse, like it's painful and suffocating being eaten alive, I imagine. <laughs> but that's sort of like what Maud does at the end of the film. Like she burns herself and she becomes an angel. Like she becomes one with God in that moment. She disappears from the earth. She becomes ashes. And that's like what Mirabai does. Like she disappears into Krishna's temple and it's legend has it she merged with his form. So it's really, really interesting and uh kind of sad and but beautiful at the same time like but it's uh yeah it's a it's like I said like this is a really interesting way to look at religion in a horror film well okay so that's it for this week's episode of good morning Nancy we're gonna end it on being devoured by god it's just so come back next week. Um, big shout out and thank you to Carolyn Girk of Velvet Hand Designs for being my co-host this week while Abby is on maternity leave. Carolyn, thank you for being an amazing friend and for supporting the show. Thank you so much for having me and letting me sit in for Abby. I could never fill her shoes, but I'm honored to try. Um, your guys' show is one of my absolute favorite horror podcasts and one that I recommend whenever I get the chance. So it really means a lot to have been able to join you. Well, thank you so, so much. That means a lot to me and I'm sure to Abby as well. So listeners, if you enjoyed the show, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on Good Morning Nancy. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and our podcast and head on over to patreon.com slash Nancy. We're still in the process of rebuilding our website, um, but <laughs> I will make sure I update you all when it's finished. So make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to tell a friend and spread the word about our show. And don't forget, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. So check out our show notes and how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.